Okay, friends, invite you to turn in your Bibles to a couple of passages, several passages this morning, and they're all listed right here. We're doing uh, something a little, <coughs> a little different today. Um, slightly, slightly different today. We're going to be in a couple of uh, several passages here. Matthew chapter 28. So it's the last chapter of Matthew. If you have ribbons in your Bible, use those. Um, or, you know, gum wrapper, or, you know, something, I don't know, piece of paper and um, bookmark of some kind. Uh, and also Acts chapter 1 and chapter 2. That one's probably easy. You could find, um, keep one bookmark there. And then the last one would be in Jude chapter 1. And actually, there, there's just one chapter in Jude. So just Jude. So we go to, to just Jude here. Um, and so those will be our scripture readings today. I will read through those and then uh, we'll begin, we'll get, begin our teaching time. And so if you are there, Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to, through 20. Just as a little survey here of uh, the end of Jesus's ministry. This is after his death and his resurrection and his appearance to all of the disciples. And this is right as he is uh, getting ready to ascend into the heavens, both Matthew 28 and, and Acts chapter 1. And so this is his final like commissioning to to the apostles in Matthew chapter 28 verse 18 it says and Jesus came and said to them all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the father and of the son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. Acts chapter 1, verse 6. So when they had come together, this is all the believers and the, the apostles, uh, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And in Acts chapter two, after that Holy Spirit that Jesus promised to uh, to send to them in Acts chapter one, Jesus has ascended into heaven and the Holy Spirit has come and the disciples begin to and the apostles begin to preach and share the gospel and many people are coming to faith in Christ and are baptized and here is a little cameo of a little snippet of what life was like in those early early days of the church verse 42 of acts chapter 2 and they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I draw your attention to that first verse there in 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And now Jude, Jude's letter, Jude chapter 1. Verses 1 through 4. Jude 
Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designed, designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. This is the reading of God's word. And we say, thanks be to God. God, indeed, we give you thanks for this word and the other various scriptures that we will see. And we pray now in these next few moments as we uh, reflect on these and reflect on what you'd have for us this morning. We pray that you would give us, um, give us the faith to see, eyes to see, ears to hear. And that you might encourage us with your word. And it's in Christ's mighty name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen. So this morning, we're going to be starting uh, introducing a, a brand new uh, series. And in order, before I tell you kind of what that series is, I wanted to kind of lay a, a groundwork with these passages. To kind of ch to, to chart what was happening in the early church. As the message of the gospel was going out, Jesus had, after his death and his resurrection, he had commissioned the apostles to go and share, um, share the message of the gospel so that people would come to believe the gospel, that they would be saved. So he says it here to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And then as people would come to Christ, they would get baptized. And then he says to teach them all that. Teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. So Jesus had given some instruction to these apostles and was giving, uh, now telling them to go and now replicate that out and teach it to others as well. Which indeed they do. As we saw in Acts chapter 1, Jesus commissions them again. And then after he ascends into the heaven, the spirit comes. And as they share the gospel message those would come to hear it and the spirit would work in their hearts to believe it and they would become Christians. And so they would become folded into this little church community. And so they started to share this gospel all over the kingdom and the apostles would write letters. They, they, it comes to a point uh, in the next decades after this, they would start to write letters or they would commission their assistants to write an account of Jesus's life so that the church had a record of the telling of the events of Jesus, his works and who he was. So that at the end of by the end of the first century or maybe even the, the beginning of the latter half of the first century, the Christian church had uh, various scriptures that were around. They were they regarded them as scriptures like Paul's letters were scriptures and Peter's letters were scripture. The gospels were circulating around at various churches. Not every church had all of them. But they did have the faith. They did have a summary statement as they would be sharing the good news about Jesus and people would come to faith in Jesus they would baptize them and welcome them into the church. But in order to do so, they would have to instruct them on something. They would have walk them through the absolute essentials and fundamentals of the faith. So much so that Jude, as we saw here in Jude's letter, he, he wanted to write to them about this common salvation, like wanted to encourage them in their their faith in Christ, their walk with Christ wanted to encourage him, but there was an issue that was happening. There were people in the church that were not following along with what the teaching was. 
And so Jude, very concerned about this, and there's, you see this in other letters too, in Peter's letters, John's letters, that there were people that were a part of the church that didn't have an understanding of the faith or were intentionally going in and trying to corrupt the faith. And so he says, hey, I wanted to write to you about our common salvation to encourage you, but I felt it necessary first to appeal to you for all of you believers to contend for the faith. Contend for the faith. Notice the definite article there. The faith. This is, he's referring here to a known and revealed body of information, a body of truth about who the Son of God is, who Jesus is. A body of information about salvation can be had through him. And notice the finality and the completeness of it. He says, for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. It's now presented to you. It's not up for amendation. You cannot edit it. You cannot change it. This is what it is. The faith once for all delivered to the saints. What is that faith? Well, it's to sum it up. It's the, the apostolic teaching. No, it's a big fancy word. Kids, write this down. Apostolic teaching. A-P-O-S-T-O-L-I-C, I think, right? <laughs> apostolic. Okay, now if you see the word apostle in there, then you're doing a really good job. Apostolic. That means, hey, this is the teaching of the apostles. Remember, Jesus had commissioned these apostles. And he says, you are going to be my witnesses. What you're going to share is the authoritative message that's going to go out. You will receive power from the Holy Spirit to do that. And then with that teaching, you are to go and make disciples of all nations. And as a matter of fact, you go through all of this body of information in order for some to be baptized and to be welcomed into the church. Let me read to you a quote. By the time that Jude wrote this letter, the faith definite article, had already been fixed and established in the apostolic teaching of the early church and therefore could not be changed. Although the New Testament documents were in existence, they hadn't been collected yet, but they were in existence and they were authoritative in the church. They hadn't been gathered into a complete canon of scripture at this, at this point in time. Nevertheless, there was a foundational New Testament authoritative teaching that was circulating uh, in oral form from the apostles to the various churches. Okay? Now, what we have as the apostles teaching now, we have here in the New Testament and combined with the Old Testament makes up the entire word of God. But prior to this, what they would have for new believers was a summary statement. And this is the earliest form of this was referred to as the Apostles' Creed, the Apostles' Creed. So let me give you a picture of what baptisms were like in the first couple of centuries. Most church services, they would welcome people who hadn't been baptized into the church. They were interested in the church. They would have them come and they would hear preaching and teaching and things like that. But they wouldn't have the Lord's Supper they would have to be excused to go out until they were baptized. And then uh, once they were baptized, then they could come and take the Lord's Supper. And so what they did is, as you were ready to, to go and get baptized, they had to give you instructions about the, the apostles' teaching. It's referred to as the apostles' creed. And so when they finally agreed to that, then they would go and get baptized. They would, uh, they would stay up all night. Then the next morning they would go to the baptismal waters and then they would recite the Apostles Creed together. And then with each of the three main parts of the Apostles Creed, they would they would get dunked underneath the water. They would get baptized. And this was that authoritative teaching that was going around in the early church. And so let me let's read this together. Some of you might know this. Some of you might know it by heart. But let's read the Apostles' Creed together. 
I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Notice the small c in Catholic. That's a, just another word for universal. So believing in the one universal church. This is what they, uh, what new potential Christians, people who are coming to profess faith in Christ before their baptism, they would be systematically walked through each of the elements here. Every one of those lines. And this was the apostles' teaching. You can find fragments of this from uh, various uses for various leaders all across the empire in the first, you know, the, the 100s and 200s AD, the second and third century. And it's basically the same wherever you were in all of the known world at that time. Some might have another little phrase or so here that was absent somewhere else. But by and large, the idea was that this, these basic elements would be, uh, would be what we would walk somebody through because these function as the apostles' teaching. Did you notice the Trinitarian structure to it? You notice all three persons of the Trinity, right? Begins with God, the Father, and then goes to, and I believe in Jesus Christ, and I believe in the Holy Spirit. These are the essentials. These are the absolute essentials. Now, have you ever been in conversations with other Christians and you're debating some of the issues of the day and there's some groups over here that may be teaching one thing and... Uh, you're kind of debating about the rightness of those things. And then um, then have you ever or someone ever stopped and, and said, uh, but what what is this? What we're debating here? Is this a, quote, salvation issue? Have you ever heard that a salvation issue? Right. This is it. There might be more to this, but there's never anything less than what's what's done here these were the salvation issue these truths this is it now a couple of um in the fourth century a.d there were some issues about uh the the identity of who jesus was if you notice here in the apostles in the apostles creed it goes i believe in jesus his son and then it goes right to he was conceived of the Holy Spirit and talks about kind of his earthly, his earthly ministry and his earthly uh, life. Kind of jumps to his earthly perspective. But there were some, uh, there were some issues about uh, looking at Jesus from a more of an eternal perspective. Like, what was his identity? Who was he? It's kind of reflected in there as, as God's son, but... Uh, there was some confusion about what that meant. And so the church got together in one large, big church convention where almost two-thirds of the entire church was gathered, I think over, the, over that, gathered together in a, in a place called Nicaea. If you were here for the Heretics and Heroes class, some of this might be familiar. And so what they did is they tried to hash out this understanding of who Jesus is, and then this becomes... Over the course of that century, this becomes an expansion of the Apostles' Creed. These become kind of the essentials of what marks somebody as being a Christian or somebody not. This, this becomes what I think that Jude is referring to when he speaks about the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And it's called the Nicene Creed. So now we're going to read another one together. Okay, It's a little bit bigger, but it might sound a little familiar. Let's read this one together. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is visible and invisible. 
We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. This is the standard summary of the Christian faith. Churches have regularly been, not only have they been walking new converts through this, but they regularly recite this creed, either this one or the Apostles' Creed, sometimes both. This is what our next series is going to be on. We're going to do a series, or maybe three series. I don't know. We're, we're figuring this out. It might be a series on the Father, and then a series on the person and work of Jesus, and then one on the Holy Spirit in the end of it here. We might break it up. Um, but think of it as one long uh, exposition on the essentials of the Christian faith by a creed that was recited and cited by believers from nearly the very, very beginning. When you were reading that, did you, did you come away with the sense that, uh, had it struck you, that you were quoting something that believers for nearly 2,000 years have recited together? That this was a regular practice in the church for most of human history, for them to get together and remind uh, one another of these truths. As you're saying these words, you're uttering the same faith that believers have, have had since the, since the beginning. So I want to run, run through a couple of uh, questions to kind of walk through uh, why it is we're doing this series on um, this creed, the Nicene Creed. Let me ask, let me begin with this question. Um, and these questions were provided from another source, and I'm just kind of giving my own answers to them here. Uh, what is a creed? Okay, the word creed from, comes from the Latin word um, credo. Sometimes it's pronounced credo. Uh, C-R-E-D-O, or credo. Think Plato, but credo. Okay, credo, which is the Latin word that means... I believe comes from the very first line in the Latin version of this. By the way, there were two there were two versions of this. There was one written in Latin, which would be for the churches that spoke that language primarily in the western half of the, the Roman Empire at this time. And then the um, on the eastern half, they primarily spoke Greek. So there's a version in, in one. There's a Latin version and a Greek version. And so it gets its title creed comes from the Latin word means I believe. This is an utterance. I believe. It's basically the statement of faith. It's a summary of the essential truths that one must profess in order to be saved. And it's a summary of, it's a summary statement. It's a, it's a confession of what it is that we believe. I think you could see a couple of examples of creedal forms, even in the even in the Bible, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Let me give you an example of one um, here in Deuteronomy chapter twenty-six, and this is at the end. Remember, 
um, Moses and the Israelites are on the other side of the Jordan. They're about ready to cross over into the land that the Lord God had promised them. And Moses is not going across, but he's giving some instructions on what to do. When you get into that land, you establish your, your, uh, the, the, uh, the altar and the priesthood is established in there. Then you are to go and bring some offerings to the high priest. And then as you do, it, it basically gives them, uh, uh, Moses gives them a creed to profess. It's very interesting. Deuteronomy chapter 26, verse, verse 5. And he goes, and you shall make response before the Lord your God, quote, a wandering Aramean was my father. Who's that, by the way? Abraham, right? They're tying their story back to the beginning. This is the people of Israel. They're going back to Abraham. He says, this is what I want you to say. A wandering Aramean, Abraham, was my father. And he went down into Egypt and sojourned there, few in number, and there became a great nation, great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and laid on us hard labor. Then we cried out to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil and our oppression. And the Lord God, brought, uh, the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place and gave us the land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And behold, now I bring the first, the first of the fruit of the ground, which you, O Lord, have given me. And you should set it down before the Lord your God. Right. He gives him a creed to cite. What are you going to say when you get over to the priests? And he retells the entire story of their all of their their nation's history in just short little summary statements. Now he could have said, well, you know, the story of Exodus, Moses, you wrote it, but he gives them a creed. He gives them a, a short summary statement that tells the, the, the main pertinent facts of it. Here's one, an example, I think in the new Testament, actually there's a couple of them, but this one I think is one of the most obvious this is in Philippians, and Paul is writing to the church of Philippi, and he's encouraging them to be humble, and he uses Jesus as a model for that. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then what a lot of commentators say is that he then quotes either a hymn or a creed. It, it does seem to suggest that this he's quoting something that would have been recited or spoken as people were gathering to, together to worship that was recounting the basic elements of the ideas, uh, the identity of Jesus. Um, and, and maybe in your Bibles, is it indented? Does anybody have this where it's kind of like more in poetic form? Philippians 2? Oh, you're not there. Sorry. I didn't turn you there. Sorry. You can look and see. But he says this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Quote, who... Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I think that does sounds like a hymn. It sounds like these short statements. So that's what a creed is, just a summary statement. What's the purpose of the creed? Let me give you two main purposes. And we've kind of seen this a little bit already. There's the sacramental and the catechetical. What? Okay, hold on. There's the one that you would give to somebody before their baptism, right? Which is one of the sacraments. And it was also what the church would recite together to remind themselves of what it was they believed. So it's sacramental tied to the baptism, but it was also catechetical. It was instruction. It was teaching even to those who already were a part of the faith. Remember, Jesus had said, well, you're going to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. The creeds serve both purposes. What does belief in this creed signify? Well, it signifies your faith. 
It symbolizes your faith. Matter of fact, that's uh, from the, the, the Greek word to, uh, uh, to throw together um, is the word we get for symbol. Sometimes this is called symbolics or the symbol of Nicaea. It signifies, it symbolizes our faith. Now, I want to talk a little bit about faith. And I, I addressed this some time ago. And I thought it so important and helpful that I think we need to, to do it again. What is saving faith? What is all included in saving faith? Well, theologians in church history have used very helpful language to describe the various parts of what saving faith entails. So here you might remember these, these Latin phrases. And I'm going to give you the Latin, but then I'm going to give you some other helpful memorization for this too. Okay, so... And say these with me. Notitia. Notitia. Ascensus. And fiducia. Okay? Notitia, ascensus, and fiducia. What's the difference? Well, notitia is just knowledge. It uh, refers to facts, propositions, propositional statements. So notitia is referring... This is the basic... This is a statement of something that, um, that we're making. We're putting forth this statement. Now, in the Christian context here, what we're talking about when it comes to a creed and our faith, it's these are statements that God has revealed about himself. And that we have to, at least intellectually, we have to understand. Do I understand the meaning of the words that are said? Okay? That's notitia. That's just knowledge. It's knowing those things. But knowledge, just saying, yeah, I, okay, I, I, know what, I know what that statement means. It, it can't stop there. It has to go on to the very next level. Sometimes it's, the, the distinction here seems so small, um, but it, it's very important that it goes to this next level, and that is a census, which is referring to our readiness to receive the truthfulness of that statement. Okay, it's submitting ourselves to that proposition in assent. We agree. I agree that that is true. Okay, so there's a statement. And then when you say that statement, you're saying, I believe that is true. That's a census, a census. So noticia, a census. But then there's yet another step that needs to be made. And that is this. Fiducia, which is trust, reliance upon that information. You know, you've heard the, the, an illustration has been given by this, by the, a famous uh, tightrope walker who could walk, you know, between, you know, a great chasm or between two buildings. And everybody stands and cheers and they go, oh, okay, you can walk between the two buildings. And then he gets and he takes a wheelbarrow and he walks across the two buildings and everybody stands and cheers. And he goes, yeah, so do you believe that I could do this? And they're like, yes. And he goes, somebody, can I have a volunteer who will get in the wheelbarrow as I go across, right? That's fiducia, right? You, you could have noticia that the guy could do it. And you, you, you hear that the guy could do it. And then you could see that he could do it. And you go, oh, I know that he could do it. It's true. Fiducia is getting in the wheelbarrow. Okay? So help you to understand this is relying upon. It's an act of our will to do this. So what are the propositions and facts and data? That's a noticia. What are the, um, are those propositions, facts and data true? That's a census. Do I live on the basis of the truthfulness? That's fiducia. So let me give you kids. Here's the. Here's the other way of uh, knowing this. Here's the three T's. Teaching, truth, and trust. Teaching, truth, and trust. Kids, say those three with me. Teaching. I'm going to do it again. Let's do it. Ready? Say those with me. Teaching, truth, and trust. That's what faith entails. And this is what the creeds help us to signify. Saving faith involves all three. Remember, even demons have the first two. Even, even demons believe that God exists. Even demons knew that Jesus was the son of God. 
credo, credo is all three. And reciting the credo together as a church helps us go from two to three. So when we profess, we believe, when we do this together in each other's presence, we're giving the notitia, we're ascensus to the notitia, and then we're preparing our hearts for fiducia, for faith. We're saying the teaching, we're saying it's true, and we're, it's helping, to, helping us to trust in it. So which creeds are there? I've just given you two. There's the Apostles' Creed. There's some Nicene creeds. There's some other ones. But these two, I mean, throughout church history, all over east and west, all over the world, these two are accepted everywhere. And most churches will confess together the Apostles' Creed. A couple reasons why. It's shorter. It's easier to memorize. Um, it's the earliest, but we don't have one definitive source. Like I said, there were lots of different versions that kind of dis, uh, not disagreed with each other, but just said some had more information than the others. Okay. And as I noted earlier, it also lacks some important details that the Nicene Creed helps to clarify especially as it comes to the deity of Jesus Christ and the deity of the Holy Spirit. And this one, we do have a source. We know exactly the church council that this councils that this came from. Okay. So the Nicene Creed expands upon and clarifies uh, what happened in with the, the apostles teaching. And so this is my goal. I want us to work through uh, in the next several months, this, this creed, step by step, line by line, going through and unpacking all of the biblical teaching that underlines each one of these. Because there's a, there's a treasure trove of scriptural uh, support for each line. And so we will, we will do that. And we'll spend a lot of our time in John's gospel. So think of it like this. We'll be, uh, we'll be doing a series on the Nicene Creed, but we will be very heavily in John's gospel. So think of it, uh, if you're like, I don't like that this is a series in the Nicene Creed. Well, then think of it as, a, as an exposition on John's gospel, because we'll be doing both. Lastly, why should we know these creeds? Well, I hinted at it here just a moment ago. Um, remember, not only is the sacramental that you have done before uh, for a, a candidate of baptism so that they would be professing this. But I also said that it was catechetical, that this is something that's for, for our instruction. That we should know these creeds that are essential to, to the Christian faith, that we should memorize them. That was very strongly stressed in the early church, um, that they would memorize these and recite these together. It's a, it's a summary of the essentials of the Christian faith. And when we, when we memorize it and we internalize it, it, it actually does its work to, to help us in our faith. I like this. Um, I mean, you know, Rich Mullins. Yes, Rich Mullins. Okay. Um, he has a song called Creed. And it's basically the text of the Apostles', the Apostles Creed. And if you actually want help to at least uh, memorize the Apostles' Creed, we're going to be doing the Nicene Creed. And obviously there's some lines there that overlap. But if you want some help and you've never memorized the Apostles' Creed, there's a couple of ways you could do it. One, for the kids who do the New City Catechism. How many of you do, have, do the New City Catechism songs? More hands? Okay. The grown-ups' hands came up. Um, there's a song in there to help you memorize it. But this one here is, uh, is a great one. Rich Mullins's Creed is a great one. I actually will sing through. I actually sing through it myself uh, to to memorize it. Now, the the verses, if you could call them that, are largely from the Apostles' Creed. But there's a refrain, a kind of a chorus that goes through the song, and it's very very important. And I, it's the only part that he's adding to this creed. And I think it's great. And I believe that it's also true. He says this: I believe what I believe is what makes me what I am. I did not make it. I did not make the creed. No, it is making me. It is the very truth of God and not the invention of any man. 
That's what, creed, that's what reciting the creed does. That's what memorizing these creeds do. And in, in some ways, and I'm really looking forward to the opportunity for us together as a church, for us to recite these together. And we will have gone through this study to know what each line that we're saying means. And so I'm looking forward to this series. But lastly, here's, here's one other reason why, um, why I think we should do it. And this is a risk. There's a risk. Now, you probably weren't expecting that. There's a risk to saying credo. There's a risk to it. Maybe, maybe it's not as easy for us to recognize this uh, living in the West and where we do today. Maybe, maybe not much longer. But all throughout church history to say credo, to say this creed, was often a death sentence. Let me read to you. Um, let me read to you a quote here. The creed begins with a decisive Latin word, "credo," I believe. Second and third century Christians who first said "credo" did not do so thoughtlessly. At times, they uttered this word at the risk of their lives under threat of possible persecution, torture, and death. Right? Let me pause there and say, um, I, I feel like it's a rarity now for churches to recite either the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed when throughout church history, they often did this. And maybe we haven't done it, maybe because the church goes, you know, for most people who are coming in or outsiders, that's, you know, let, let's just eliminate that part. Or maybe, uh, maybe it was, you know, when we're saying it, we're just kind of thoughtlessly going through the motions. What these historians that I'm quoting from here are saying, that was an impossibility for the first several centuries. If you said, Credo, you were, you were putting your life at risk. Continuing on. To say Credo in this way was to speak from the heart in direct defiance of the powers that be. Precisely when those powers required direct denial of Christian faith. To say, I believe, is to reveal who one most deeply is. To confess one's essential belief. To state openly the truth that makes life worth living. Despite perilous consequences. One who says, credo without willingness to suffer and if necessary die for the faith has not genuinely said credo in its deepest Christian sense. During times of persecution, the baptismal confession typically was memorized, not only because it was unsafe to write it down, but also because written texts made other innocent people more susceptible to charges under civil authorities. More reliable was the quiet tradition faithfully passed on ver verbally through the uh, bishops or overseers from the apostles. The bishop's primary task was to maintain accurate apostolic teaching without addition or subtraction. They and the elders under their guidance were charged with carefully guarding and defending the apostolic rule of faith for the eternal destiny and spiritual benefit of believers. Continuing on, Christians have a right and a responsibility to know the meaning of their baptism. Because remember, this was, the, this was connected so much to baptism. You have a right and responsibility to know the meaning of your baptism. The purpose of this series is so that we can know the meaning of baptism for all believers throughout all of history. And what it means to believe in God, the Father Almighty, in God, his only begotten Son, and in God, the Spirit. Again, I think it's hard for us to get a sense of this today, but not in other parts of the world, not in the Muslim world, to utter credo, to gather together and to say these things put you at great risk. 
And frankly, I think we need to say this so that we too are ready. I think that we need to say credo now more than ever because it's getting worse. So what I'd like to do is recite this again together. And then we will move to taking the Lord's Supper before we go. Let's stand together as we recite the Nicene Creed. Let's say this. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is visible and invisible. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, and who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who was spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen and amen. Now let's take the meal that Jesus gave us um, to mark what we just recited about his death and his atoning sacrifice on the cross. That Jesus gave this meal on the night before his arrest, the night of his arrest, the night before his crucifixion, for us to have a tangible way of of experiencing the gospel. And that when we take these elements that we receive them, we are remembering the work and we are reminded that is the same way that these nourish and refresh our bodies. The gospel of Jesus Christ nourishes and refreshes us for our, our walk in this world. And so let's pray over our meal together. And then invite you to come, take your elements, take them back to your seats as we do the words of institution. Gracious Heavenly Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for this meal that you've given us. And that even now, by the Holy Spirit, we confess our sins and our, um, our unworthiness, but we also claim the wonderful truth that you have forgiven us and saved us through the work of your Son, Jesus Christ. And so may we, as we take this, be reminded of that, that truth. That we, um, as, as the, the crunch of the bread and as this fruit of the vine uh, touches our tongue, may, we, may this spur into our minds this wonderful work that Jesus has done for us. And so we give you thanks and praise and gratitude for it. In the name of your Son and by the power of the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Friends, come to the table.
Hear the words of the institution of the Lord's Supper. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's receive the body of Christ. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And friends, let's stand together and pray this prayer. Let's say these words together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for feeding us with the spiritual food of the most precious body and blood of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And for assuring us in these holy mysteries that we are living members of the body of your Son and heirs of your eternal kingdom. And now, Father, send us out to do the work you have given us to do, to love and serve you as faithful witnesses of Christ our Lord. To him and to you and to the Holy Spirit be honor and glory both now and forever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the fellowship that we have in the Holy Spirit be with all of you as you go. Thank you.